It bothers us when we know something about people and circumstances, but there are still gaps that we don't know. I suspect that it is out of that desire for, uh, for knowing more that many of the legends that we hear and read about arise. You know, something happens in, the, uh, in the, the great woods and we come up with something called Bigfoot to describe it. Something happens in Scotland and we come up with the Loch Ness Monster. We, you know, we, we have all of these legends and many of the fables of, of, of people or help us grasp and understand and fill in gaps of things. And, and of course, in the recent history, there have been a number of urban legends that have arisen. And uh, things that we, you know, we try to help us fill in the gap of things. And you can go on websites and figure out whether they're true or not. I, I read this week uh, an urban legend. I had not heard this before. It's about Mr. Rogers that uh, it said the legend is that he was a Navy SEAL before he started his television program. And the reason he wore sweaters is because he had so many tattoos all over him that he was, didn't want to scare the children. I'm pretty sure that's not true. Uh, but you can go on the internet and find out if it's true or not, if these people know. I was thinking about those legends and things this week as I was rereading the story again and thinking about the story of Mary Magdalene. It's intriguing to me that Mary is given so much weight, so much space in the, really the small amount of material we have about the resurrection. Mary's not really someone special. We... You know, there have been a lot of legends that have been written up about Mary as well. There are, there, there are some legends that say that she and Jesus were involved in a relationship, that they were married, they had children. I mean, on and on it goes. But Mary seems to be one of the, one of the people in Scripture that, that folks want to make up stories about her. But what we know from the Scriptures is that she is a woman who for some reason, and we don't know exactly what it's about, but she has seven demons in her that Jesus casts out of her, heals her, transforms her. Because of that, she becomes one of the devoted followers of Jesus. She's a part of a group of women who, Luke tells us, take care of the needs of Jesus and his disciples, which may mean that they are wealthy and so they help pay for their food and lodging and things, but it probably means that they, they travel with them and they cook their meals and they do their laundry and they just take care of some of the mundane tasks. And it's not because they are in some way subserving it to Jesus. It's because Jesus has done something in their lives and this is a way of expressing their gratitude. And so we have Mary in the middle of this story. We also know about Mary that she is one of the few people who is mentioned as being, one of the few disciples is mentioned as being at the cross when Jesus is crucified. There are a few other names of women there. While most of the disciples run and hide, Mary and some of these women stick with Jesus 
all the way to the end. And the gospel writers give us various facts about the resurrection story. Each of the gospel writers includes details that the others don't. But one of the details that all of them include is that early on that first Easter morning, Mary goes to the tomb. Mary comes to the tomb. She finds that the stone has not just been rolled away, it has been lifted out of the groove and set aside. That seems to be the image we get from the words John uses. And without anything else happening, she runs and tells John and Peter, and they come running back, and they go into the tomb, and they see that the body is gone, the grave clothes are there still. And they come out scratching their heads, trying to figure out what exactly has happened here. And John tells us that they go home, and Mary stays. Now, I don't want to make too much out of that, and I don't want to put too much on the disciples, but it it seems as though there is something in Mary that the disciples don't yet feel that she's not going to stop looking for Jesus. I don't think Mary knows any more than the disciples do about what's happened. I don't think she perceives any more about what has taken place here than Peter and John do. But when they naturally turn and go home, she stays. And she's looking, searching. She doesn't ever go into the tomb. I don't know why. But John says she bends over and looks in and she sees two men seated there that weren't there before. And John makes a point to tell us that they are seated where Jesus was lying. One at the head, one at the foot. I think John is trying to remind us in another subtle way, Jesus is not here. He has risen. And then Mary feels someone behind her. You know that sense of, you don't hear anything, no one says anything, but you just sort of have that sort of that sixth sense that someone is standing behind you and you turn. And she turns and there is a man she thinks is the gardener. And he asks her, why are you weeping? She's not weeping because Jesus is dead. I think she's shed enough tears about that. She's weeping now because his body has been taken by someone. And that disturbs her deeply, as you can well imagine. What have they done with Jesus? She has no clue that this is Jesus himself. He says her name and everything changes. Mary has this encounter with the angels and with Jesus because something in her won't let go of searching, seeking Jesus. Looking for Jesus. This idea of seeking God, of seeking Jesus, is one of the major themes that makes its way through the scriptures from beginning to end. In, in, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing to leave the people of Israel and he keeps telling them, seek the Lord your God with all of your heart. Keep seeking him. David says to Israel, seek the Lord with all your heart. David says to Solomon, trying to prepare him to be, take over the, the reign of Israel. And he says, if you seek the Lord your God with all your heart, you will find him. 
Keep seeking. Keep seeking. We see it over and over and over again. We hear it over and over again of God calling his people to seek him. Of the prophets telling the people to seek God. And this idea of seeking is, is more than, it's something you, you can't just do it casually. To truly seek God is to engage with God with all of our heart, all of our soul, mind, every part of our being. It is this yearning, this desire in, in Psalm 63 that we read a few moments ago. David says, I, I seek you with all of my heart. Like, like a, a thirsty man seeking water. Seeking God. Is, it's like those moments when you have lost something. You cannot find it. And you, you turn the house upside down looking for it. It's that valuable. There is no closet that hasn't been opened and taken things out. There's no drawer that hasn't been examined. There's no couch under which you haven't looked. Every place you can possibly think it could be, you search it. And after you're about a half an hour, your house looks like a tornado's gone through it. That's the kind of seeking that God is asking of his people. It is with every part of our being, everything in our hearts, everything in our minds, it is a yearning, a desire to know God. To seek God. In Psalm 119, it talks about seeking and obeying the word. And those two ideas are connected together. And I don't think that means that everybody who obeys the word is necessarily seeking God. Because Jesus calls out the religious leaders of Israel for knowing the scriptures but not doing anything about it. But if we are seeking God, we will naturally want to do what God wants us to do. It is one of the ways in which seeking comes out of us. It's one of the ways in which we seek. To look at God's word, to hear God's word, to read God's word, and to respond positively to it. And to respond positively to God. There is a sense in seeking that we realize that we simply want what God wants. And I suspect that one of the reasons we struggle with seeking, one of the reasons we are hesitant to seek as God is calling us to seek is because we don't really want God the way he wants us. There's a sense, quite frankly, of apathy about God. We want God when we're in trouble. We want God when we need him for something. But when it's just life, it is so easy for us to take seeking God casually. And one of the reasons we do that, I think, is because deep inside, we're a little bit afraid of what God may ask of us if we really seek him with all of our heart. What if God asks us Something hard, something difficult. What if when we seek God, when we open our hearts to God, when we open our minds and every part of our being to God, he puts his finger on something in our lives and says, you know, you got to take care of that. You need to ask that person to forgive you. 
or even more difficult, you need to go and forgive that person. You, you need, to, uh, you need to, to be obedient in, in the way that I'm leading you. And I know you want this plan for your life, but uh, this is more the direction that I think you ought to go. This is going to lead you to so much more. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to go wherever God calls you to go? Are you willing to stay when you'd rather go? And I think we fear what God may ask of us. And yet, when we read the scriptures, what are we afraid of? If we believe that God loves us and that everything he does for us is in our best interest and his desires for us is, is to be all that he created us to be and to live in the fullness of his grace and mercy and love and peace, if, we, if, if that's true, then whatever God may be asking of us is always going to lead us toward that. And that's the problem with not seeking God with all of our hearts, is because we put up barriers, and we put up walls, and it prevents us from experiencing all that God wants us to experience. I think that's what happens when we get distracted. We get distracted with with shiny things of life, and, and they seem so awesome But they pull our attention away from God. You see Mary here at the tomb. She is so enamored with the empty tomb. She can't reach. She doesn't realize that Jesus is standing right next to her. And sometimes we are so. We're so enamored. With things that have happened in our lives. That we, we can't let go of. People who have hurt us. Circumstances that have brought pain to us. Our dreams and plans that we want for us. We get so enamored with those things. We have a hard time realizing that Jesus is standing right there. And has so much more for us. I don't know about you, but I often find that one of the barriers for seeking God in my life are the boxes that I create. And the ways in which I shape God into the image that I want him to be. Instead of who he says he is. I limit God. Instead of letting God do whatever he wants to do. I put boxes around God. And all the while he is saying, if you trust me. If you'll seek me without any of, these, uh, any of these boxes and limitations, we can do some amazing things together. But the boxes are comfortable and they make me feel secure and quite frankly, in control. I think one of the reasons we struggle with silence in prayer, with contemplative prayer with listening prayer is because we're a little bit apprehensive about what God's going to say to us in the silence. You, you've been in a circumstance with someone 
you're in a conversation, you're a little bit nervous about things they might bring up that you don't want to talk about. So what do you do? You monopolize the conversation. Right? As long as you can control the conversation, as long as you keep talking and don't let them get a word in edgewise, how can they bring it up? And you walk away going, who would dodge that bullet? I think we do that with God sometimes. We come to prayer, and yes, we need to talk to God. It's important for us to talk to God. It's a, it's a huge part of what it means to pray. But sometimes I wonder if we never stop for silence because we're a little bit afraid that God's going to put his finger on something in our lives. That he's going to shatter our boxes and our boundaries. He's going to ask us to, to think of life in much bigger terms the way he does. And it frightens us. Jesus says to Mary, I want you to go and tell the disciples that I am ascending to my father. There's a lot going on in that. I mean, he told his disciples earlier in the, in the upper room that night before he died that, that he needed to ascend to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could come upon them and be with them. And that's a part of what he's saying to them. But I, I think there's also something in that idea of him ascending that, that eliminates the boundaries of being a human person on earth. I mean, he is always the incarnate son. But while he's on earth in this human body, there are limitations to where he can go and what he can do. When he ascends into heaven, there are no more boundaries. And as someone has said, he is now loose on the earth. And when Jesus is loose on the earth, all bets are off. And boundaries get moved and boxes get shattered. And are nice, safe Comfortable lives are challenged. But don't we want more than just nice, safe, comfortable lives? Don't we want all that God has for us? Don't we want to know the joy of, of, of God's presence in us, doing more, as Paul says, than we could dream or imagine? I mean, that's why we were created. We were created more for more than just what we could imagine life can be. We were created for what the Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, knows life can be. If we'll just seek Him, open our hearts to Him. In that seeking, as we open our hearts to him, it's going to mean sort of a change in the way we view the journey of life. Because often we view the journey of life as how quickly can I get to the end? How quickly can I get to the end results that I'm looking for? And all we're focused on is getting that accomplished, getting to that goal, getting to that end. And it creates an atmosphere in us when we focus on just the end results. It creates in us the temptation to be manipulative, to be schemers, to live with the mindset that the end justifies the means. And, and getting to the end is all that matters. Then if we leave a carnage of relationships and people in our wake, sometimes that's the way it goes because we got to get to the end. 
When getting to the end is most important, we're always telling God to hurry up. We're probably telling other people to hurry up. And like Mary, we are so focused on someplace else that we miss Jesus in the moment, right here with us. People who seek God with all of their heart live in the moment of Christ, right here, right now. And it doesn't mean we don't think about the end, it's not our focus. Our focus is Christ right now, right here in this moment. And that means if Christ wants to take us that way in the moment, we go that way. If he wants to take us that way, we go that way. If he wants us to stand still, we stand still. If he wants us to move, we move. But it's living in the moment because God is is less concerned about the end results than he is the relationship with us in the moment. If you're in a relationship with someone, if all you're thinking about is where you're going to get to, it's probably not going to be a very healthy relationship. Relationships are built day by day, moment by moment, learning about each other, growing together, the ebb and flow and the give and take. And what's fascinating is that when you live with the focus on on the moment, on the relationship, the end sort of takes care of itself. And seeking God with all of our hearts is not so much about the end as it is our motivation for the moment. About just desiring Jesus every day, every moment to the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. Just wanting Jesus and surrendering to Jesus. And when we do that, it creates a sensitivity in us that we see Jesus. We recognize him in our lives and in the the world around us that we had missed before because our eyes were way out there instead of right here. And in that sensitivity, we begin to understand more than we ever have the depths of God's love for us and and, and the relationship he desires for us. Isn't it interesting that Mary looks right at Jesus and she doesn't even recognize that it's him? Now, granted, he has a a resurrected body that's, that's same but different, but I think part of it is the context. I mean, the last thing she's thinking she's going to see is Jesus alive. She was there at the cross. She watched him breathe, gasp his last breath. She saw him die. And she was a part of the group of people who wrapped him in grave clothes. And she watched him be carried to the tomb. And she watched him laid on the slab. And she watched as the stone was rolled into place, sealing the tomb. There's no doubt in her mind he was dead. Jesus being alive now is completely out of context. You know how that is. You see someone in a different place than you normally see them. And and you scratch your head thinking, oh, how do I know that person? And if you're like me, I I typically am able to, to figure out how I know them by the context of the place where I know them. Where they work or where our paths have intersected. 
Even people I know pretty well, sometimes if I see them out of context, it takes me a second to realize, oh, that's who that is. I, I have that experience all the time when we're in Olean or you know, Rochester or someplace outside the community and, I, and we run into a family from the church. It's so funny to watch the children. You know, they're tapping mom and dad. It's Pastor West. It's Pastor West. Why is he doing here? Why isn't he at the church? He should always be at the church. I don't know him outside there. And why is he wearing those clothes? Those are not his church clothes. It's so funny to watch them just sort of, you can see the wheels turning in their minds. They're like, this is not right. I don't understand this. I think Mary's going through some of that. What, Jesus? It's the last thing in the world she's thinking is she's going to see and talk to Jesus until he says, Mary. And hearing her name from the lips of Jesus opens her eyes. Because ultimately, it's all about their relationship. And she sees and she hears. And what is the neck? What does she do? She worships. John gives us, John just says, you know, Jesus says to her, don't touch me. Because I'm sending the Father. And, and I get the image from the other gospel writers that Mary is probably lying flat on the ground with her arms wrapped around Jesus' legs. I can almost see Jesus trying to walk, you know, he's kind of dragging her across like that. And she's not letting go. You can almost sense her saying, I lost you once, this is not happening again, I am staying here. And worship is essential to our lives. Worship is so important to us. And and we need to worship Christ. And it, it is vital to us. But there is something in Jesus saying to her, don't cling to me because I've got a job for you to do. Something about that reminds us that worship is never just me and Jesus and nobody else matters. Worship is not something that insulates us from the rest of the world. I think that the church through history at times has has forgotten that. And we've viewed being holy and worshiping as cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world. We are secluding ourselves. And that's what it means to be holy. But being holy and seeking Jesus that leads to worship doesn't mean we're clinging with Jesus. It means that our hearts are open to him. We're worshiping him so that we can hear him send us forth. Because there are people who need to hear about Jesus. There are people who need to see Jesus in us. It's interesting to me that when Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandment is, he doesn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and stop. He says, that's the first one. But the second one is is woven together with it that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And being a, a seeker of the risen Christ is always going to involve worship, And sharing. Loving God and loving others. It's a part of the process. It's what it means to seek. It's what it means to be a disciple of the risen Christ. Christ. 
Mary has to be one of the most unexpected people to be placed in this position. Anybody writing this story on their own without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wouldn't tell it this way, particularly in the first century. In that culture, women are not considered credible witnesses. Women are allowed to testify in court. Their, their word isn't taken seriously. And, and if we were to make this up, we would say, let's find the most powerful person we can. The person that has the most influence in society. That's who Jesus should appear to first. And then he can tell everybody else. And once again, God surprises us. He does the unexpected. He doesn't choose one of the disciples he doesn't choose, if he's going to choose a woman, he doesn't choose his mother. He chooses Mary. Quite frankly, not anybody special. Except to Jesus. And Mary becomes not just the first person to witness Jesus resurrected, but the first person to tell anybody else about it. And God, again, reminds us of the unexpected ways in which he works in our lives. Unexpected people. I know every one of us has people that we encounter that, and we are thinking there's no way in the world God could ever say anything to me through them. Unexpected circumstances. God is the master at using the unexpected to speak into our lives. But we will miss it if we aren't seeking, if we aren't looking, if our hearts and our minds and our eyes aren't open to it. F.B. Meyer, great British pastor of another generation, once said, the greatest disappointments in heaven, if there can be disappointments in heaven. If there can be disappointments in heaven, the greatest disappointment in heaven might well be when we realize all the things that God wanted to do in our lives and through us. But we wouldn't let him. Because he wanted to do those things in unexpected ways. Through unexpected people, unexpected circumstances. I suspect every one of us is here this morning and our minds are turning and we're thinking about a person, a circumstance, a situation that it, back in the recesses of our minds, we're pretty sure. God is prompting us about it. Will we let God speak into our hearts? Are we seeking him with that kind of openness and trust to let him say what he wants to say and to prompt us to do what he wants us to do and to find in obedience and in trust Amazing joy.
and life. Transformation. For us, and maybe for others. Father, in this moment of silence, help us to have hearts, eyes, minds, spirits that seek you, that are open to you, that trust you with everything that we are. Father, thank you for loving us enough to want more for us than we want for ourselves. Thank you for Christ who seeks us. Give us grace like Mary to seek you. We ask this Through Christ, who is risen and who is at work to transform each of us. Amen.